Mark, thank you very much. Um, slightly worried about the quotes that you picked up there. Um, guru, high priest, tree hugger in chief. Sort of sends out a slightly unscientific kind of message, doesn't it, really? Which I suppose is not a bad starting place for what I'm going to try and share with you today. Because actually I want to give a talk that is about the use of science in society today and how we need to rethink the science base on which we're going to achieve uh, all the expectations that we have for a better world for ourselves um, and other people in the world. So I do feel very privileged to have been asked to give this lecture, 31st Annual Camden Lecture. I looked through the list of the predecessors who've given this lecture, and it's uh, daunting to think of the expertise that has stood in front of you on similar occasions. And I will refer to one or two of those earlier lectures uh, in terms of what I'll be saying today. Because I couldn't help but think that over the 31 years, I doubt there really has ever been a time where such radical discontinuities, as I call them, have stared us all in the face in terms of policymakers, decision makers, academics, researchers, scientists, members of the public. I think we're looking at an extraordinary period of time ahead of us now. And my big concern is that our policymaking machinery here in the UK is not reflecting those radical discontinuities, is completely out of step with what science now tells us about many of these key issues, and needs to reform the entire process of policymaking in order to come up with something better than we have today. Now, I dare say a lot of policymakers won't thank me for that. Policymakers abhor radical discontinuities, they are really irritating and painful. DEFRA is endlessly troubled by unforeseeable radical discontinuities, such as foot and mouth and other diseases of that kind. But I think they probably ought to be able to cope with completely foreseeable radical discontinuities. And the bit that is missing for me in DEFRA today is any real understanding of how those completely foreseeable radical discontinuities impact now on their responsibilities. So I want to start by suggesting to you that the current key strategy for DEFRA and for the food and farming industry here in the UK today, namely the strategy for sustainable farming and food, is no longer fit for purpose. I say that with a slight sinking heart. The Sustainable Development Commission was very closely involved in the work of Sir Don Curry's commission that led directly to the strategy, the Sustainable Farming and Food Strategy, and we have been very supportive of that process all the way through from the start. But quite honestly, if you look at where we are now in comparison to the time when that strategy came out four or five years ago, you have to say that that strategy has been entirely overtaken by our new understanding of critical factors in the world today. Not only that, it has also been completely overtaken by developments in the government's own policies. And that's really where I want to start, because one of the problems that we have in our government today is that policy made in one area does not automatically trans through, translate through into changes or evolution in policy elsewhere. And I just want to look at two of those key areas to begin with, namely climate change and obesity. 
both of which have seen substantial shifts in policy inside the government, inside the Department of Health on obesity, inside DEC and Burr on climate change. And those changes have not as yet been reflected in DEFRA's own position. So let's start with climate change. It's the one that we hear an awful lot about today, and it certainly shapes a great deal of people's concerns about the future. This government has done something quite unique in the world today. It has passed a Climate Change Act through the House of Commons. It is the only country in the world to have an act of that kind with statutory targets for reduction of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. It has recently sent back to the House of Commons the targets that it is now looking for in those areas, and I'm sure that many of you will have seen what those targets amount to. So just to remind you, the targets now for the UK are for a 34% reduction in CO2 and other greenhouse gases by 2020. 34% reduction by 2020 going to a 40% reduction if a deal is done in Copenhagen at the end of the year, and an 80% reduction by 2050. These are probably the most ambitious targets anywhere in the world, although Sweden, the Netherlands, and other European countries have similar targets slightly differently framed. That's where we are now in the UK. That's what we're committed to do. We also have a target, shared with all our other European partners, to produce 15% of all energy in this country from renewable sources by 2020. 15%. That's not just electricity. That includes heating, energy for heating, and energy for transportation, which includes aviation and shipping. That's a kind of eye-watering target when you look at it. Given where we are in the world today on renewable energy, which is really pretty poorly placed, I'm sorry to say that when you check out the league table of performance on renewable energy in Europe, you will find only two countries below us, those two countries being Malta and Luxembourg. <laughs> and given that we have the greatest potential renewable energy resource of any country in Europe, no other country has the renewable energy resource that we do, potential resource that we do, it is pretty shaming, frankly, to be third off the bottom of this league table. So 15% by 2020, that's quite something. There are three departments in the UK government that haven't got the first understanding of what they're now going to have to do to contribute to those targets. The first is Treasury. Treasury's record on many of these sustainability issues, and climate change in particular, over the last 10 years has been woeful. They don't really understand what climate change is about. They failed properly to internalize the lessons from Lord Stern's, Nick Stern's magisterial report on the economics of climate change, and they continue to operate as if this whole matrix of issues around climate change has no real impact on the macroeconomic models that they use in the UK today. The second department is Burr, Business, Enterprise, and Regulatory Reform, and I won't say anything more about that. <laughs> and the third is Department for Transport, and I won't say anything more about that. 
So that just leaves us with DEFRA. And there is now a very big question mark about DEFRA's ability to contribute to these UK-wide statutory targets. No decision has as yet been made as to what share of the 34% will be parceled out to DEFRA. There are some wonderfully fraught discussions going on across Whitehall at the moment as to which bits of government will pick up what percentage of shared responsibility for achieving those targets. And obviously DEFRA will have to speak for the whole of the farming and food industry in this country. Now I ask you quite dispassionately whether you really think we at the moment in terms of farming, land use, food, supply chains and all the rest of it, whether you really think we as a nation are on track to contributing to a 34% reduction in CO2 by 2020. Now you may feel that this is an unfair question to ask, but the truth of it is that the science that has informed those targets is itself moving very, very fast. I was privileged enough last week to spend three days with 32 Nobel laureates gathered together in London to discuss the implications of climate change for global futures of many different kinds with a view to informing the Copenhagen Conference at the end of the year. I do try to avoid falling into what has become a rather fashionable despair about climate change, a kind of Lovelockian apocalyptic view that it is all too late anyway, so why are we bothering? I try to avoid that. But when I was listening to some of these Nobel laureates, the kind of scientists whose names are absolutely out there as exemplars of scientific authority and genius, and you listen to the warnings coming from them about the fact that the current scientific consensus does not actually reflect what is happening out there in the natural world today. And you come away from a session like that thinking, how is it that we still haven't really internalized this understanding of climate change? How is it we listen to these targets and don't think, oh, that's going to mean radically different ways of doing things. We just listen to them and we go on doing pretty much what we've been doing before. Three weeks ago, scientists in the Arctic reported the highest ever level of recorded CO2 in the last 50 million years. They recorded a finding of 397 parts per million. Now, since then, that finding has come down. The Arctic and the Antarctic are not representative of average concentrations or temperatures anywhere else on the planet, but they are used as bellwethers of what is actually happening elsewhere in the global system. The fact that we're heading very near to 400 parts per million even now, which is many, many years ahead of what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change told us was likely to happen, is an indication of the speed with which this is now moving. So you may all think that 34% is a ridiculously ambitious target and isn't realistic when you set it against the science as we know it today, it is extremely realistic. Indeed, it is probably the minimum that will be asked of any OECD country in future. DEFRA's current policy does not reflect the need to contribute to a 34% target. It doesn't get anywhere close to reflecting it. 
and nor does the sustainable farming and food strategy. Secondly, and rather more briefly, you'll be happy to know on obesity, there's also been considerable progress made in government on addressing obesity issues over the last few years. The Department of Health has worked extremely hard with the Cabinet Office and elsewhere in government to think through a more radical strategy about obesity. You probably know the facts here. We already face an ongoing annual health bill of around seven to eight billion pounds a year as a consequence of obesity in this country. We know that this is a major contributor to the four principal diseases in this country now, causes of mortality in this country, in terms of poor diets contributing to that, levels of inactivity, and so on. We have the highest level of child obesity in the UK of any European country. The Foresight Report on Obesity predicted that 40% of UK citizens will be obese by 2025, and on current business-as-usual food policy, I stress that, levels of obesity will be 60% of the population by 2050. Does our policy reflect that today? Do you really think the sustainable farming and food strategy has got its head around those statistics, those indicators of change in our society? I don't think so. And then, of course, there's the interesting interconnection between climate change and obesity. This is another of these controversial areas that I know I'm going to get into a lot of trouble about. But nonetheless, they are intricately linked. I was sort of heartened to discover that this has now been discovered by no less a media authority than The Sun, the Sun recently picked up on a report from the World Health Organization which calculated, through some diligent number crunching, that overweightness and obesity contribute significantly to the problem of climate change. Why? Because, sorry to have to put this quite bluntly, overweight and obese people tend to eat a lot more of the things that increase their carbon footprint and tend in particular to eat a lot more meat. Now, we are treading into some controversial territory here, obviously, and I don't intend to do too much of that stuff today. But nonetheless, if the sun gets it, you sort of have to wonder how long it's going to take DEFRA to get it. <laughs> this is the article in the, in the sun. I only offer you this because I was so amused by it. Really, you won't be able to see this, but climate change you can see here. And the main heading is, Fatty's Girth Wrecking Earth. You've got to hand it to the sun. They do know how to communicate this stuff. And this is all based on some pretty pucker research that shows that very overweight and obese people contribute one ton more per person per annum. One ton per person per annum more than non-overweight and obese people. There are a billion people in that category in the world today. A billion people overweight and obese. That's a billion extra tons of CO2 every year. So, we have to do a little bit of joined up thinking here and we have to address these controversial issues. Now for me that begins to get us into the even more vexatious territory of food security and how we address food security. Because here again one has to say that DEFRA is beginning to show substantial renewed interest in the concept of food security and is now part and parcel of a much bigger debate across government 
led in particular by the Cabinet Office's Food Matters Report, which I think is very helpful. As of now, however, DEFRA has not fully reflected these concerns into its paper on food security. So when it brought out its paper in 2008, ensuring the UK's food security in a changing world, it defined food security as follows. We believe that global food security means that everybody has enough to eat. Full stop. I'm not really sure that represents the height of intellectual endeavor in this area. And even the Food and Agriculture Organization has done rather better than that. The FAO describes food security as food security exists when all people at all times have access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food to meet their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. Still inadequate, inasmuch as there's no reference to any physical system that provides that food, but even so, it's moving in the right direction. As the guardians of the government's own sustainable development strategy, you would hope that DEFRA would be able to incorporate some recognition of the importance of sustainable development in its own definition of food security, and we have now made some recommendations to DEFRA on that count. So I want to open up this debate about food security in a rather different way, and I just want to touch on how these issues now are coming together in a very disturbing way for policymakers. These synergistic effects between different issues are what we have to address. So far, I've only talked about climate change and obesity, and they are obviously crucial. I just want to remind you, however, that they are only two aspects of a converging set of challenges to food production in the world today, which have to be seen holistically, synergistically. You can't take each of them in isolation. The government's chief scientific advisor, John Beddington, is currently very active in alerting Gordon Brown and other ministers across government that we are heading into what he calls a perfect storm. He says the window of time for this is anywhere between now and 2030. I totally agree with him, apart from the time frame that he offers them. Tell a politician that he or she has got 20 years to sort something out and they feel very comfortable. <laughs> Tell them they probably need to get it sorted in the next five to 10 years and it gets a little bit more pressing. Don't ever talk about what the climate change targets are for 2050, because as soon as a politician hears that, they kind of, not in my term of office, thank you very much. So on top of the climate change and obesity stuff, just think about the interconnectivity with these other 10 issues, okay? And we're going to whirl through these very, very quickly. First, what people call the oil-food nexus. You all know that in the world today, our food production systems are 100% dependent on access to reasonably cheap sources of fossil fuels, of hydrocarbons, particularly of oil and gas. People often underestimate the degree of dependency of food production and food retail systems on oil and gas, but when you begin to unpack that level of dependency, it's a pretty stark reminder of just how frail some of these systems really are. It seems as if people have already forgotten that when oil prices went to $147 a barrel in the middle of 2008, we began to see politicians all over the world, and in the UN in particular, predicting an absolutely dire time ahead in terms of impact on poor countries around the world 
and worsening access to supplies of food. Shehrzad Shirin, head of the United Nations World Food Program, issued this warning in February 2008 as follows. This now is the new face of hunger, brought on by very high prices in oil and gas. There is food on shelves still, but people are being priced out of those markets. There are food riots in countries where we've never seen food riots before. We will have a significant gap if commodity prices remain this high across the world, and we will need an extra half a billion dollars just to meet existing food needs in those countries today. Now, fortunately, oil prices came down off that spike of $147 a barrel in August 2008. They came down very fast. They came down largely and ironically, of course, because of the impending economic recession at that time. And we all know that in a recession, when economic activity slows, the price of energy falls because there is less demand in the system for it. Question mark. With oil now back up to $68 a barrel, which is what it was trading at yesterday, having gone down to a low of $32 a barrel in February, where do you think oil prices are going to be settling over the course of the next two to three years? Analysts are very clear about this. As soon as the global economy picks up again, as soon as levels of economic activity are resumed, particularly in India and China, we're going to see increases in oil prices taking us close to and possibly through that $100 a barrel mark all over again. Do you really think our policy on food and farming in this country is geared to oil prices permanently in excess of $100 a barrel? Not in my opinion. Secondly, nitrogen. As you know, synthetic nitrogen is manufactured through the use of gas, primarily. Gas prices track oil prices. High oil prices means high gas prices. High gas prices means high fertilizer prices. We saw all of that very, very clearly last year in 2008 when fertilizer prices rocketed up and the likelihood is that they will simply track the increase in the price of oil all over again. Thirdly, phosphate, on which, of course, modern farming depends very heavily. Every year we import around 200,000 tons of phosphate rock into the UK. There are many different estimates as to the sustainability of those existing reserves of phosphate rocks. There are only four countries primarily involved in the production of phosphate rock. Some people think that we will hit peak phosphate within as little as eight years. Some people tell us we've got 20 years. After 20 years? Interesting story. We have to rethink the whole deal. Fourthly, chemicals. You don't get chemicals without using very large amounts of fossil fuels. And we tend not to factor that into our understanding of food security. Fifthly, water. Agriculture, as you know, accounts for around 70% of total freshwater use across the planet. You think of some of these countries now, China, Australia, California, where food production is already dramatically affected by water shortages and water stress. <coughs> Steve Chu, the new Energy Secretary in the United States, who I was privileged enough to hear last week at this gathering of Nobel laureates, gave an astonishing speech to agricultural interests and farmers in California in January this year. He basically said he didn't think there would be any farming in California 
after 2030. He didn't think there'd be any farming because of a combination of accelerated climate change and water shortages. You know what's happening in Australia at the moment. The complete collapse in the Murray-Darling Basin. You know what's going on in China. The whole of northern China is suffering from intense water stress, affecting food production systems now across 40% of China's agricultural land. We just bank that information and sort of think, yeah, well, China, Australia, California. How many more countries do we need to add to the list before we get the message? Combine that, of course, with our knowledge about growing demand for food in the world today because people will increase their demand for foodstuffs of different kinds as the global economy goes on getting richer. We've seen that in China and India, particularly in terms of increased meat consumption. We know full well that that demand at the moment is going to have to be met by increased production of one kind or another. Even the most enthusiastic cornucopians acknowledge that the technology pipeline we have available to us to meet that increased demand is woefully inadequate. Even if you're the biggest enthusiast for GM of one kind or another, nobody, nobody will stand up and say, that's the silver bullet we need to meet the growing demands of 70, addition, 70 million additional people every year. Seventh point, what I call land grabs. I imagine some of you will be following quite carefully now how different countries are not waiting around for the combined effect of all of these factors to hit their supply chains. Some of you will have seen the story in December where Daewoo, one of the largest South Korean companies in the world today, indeed one of the largest multinational companies in the world today, simply bought one and a half million hectares of land in Madagascar to produce commodity crops, primarily maize and oil, and oil palm, exclusively for use in South Korea. China is buying up vast acreages of Africa, Sri Lanka, Saudi Arabia, is vying up as much land as it can for designated production for Saudi Arabia. Some countries seem to think that global supply chains aren't going to be quite as resilient as we might think they would be and basically want to build an insurance policy so that they control access to designated areas of land for their own unique and exclusive purposes. Globalization of a rather different kind not the sort of globalization that most people like to talk about in circles such as this. Eighth point, soil. Well, you'd like to think that our soils around the world were in good shape to accommodate that increased demand against increased stress around water and climate. Unfortunately, not so. UNEP's figures, as you know, indicate that around 2 billion hectares of land are now affected by human-induced poor farming practice of one kind or another. Here in, De in the UK, DEFRA has indicated that we have a huge responsibility now for better management of soils in the UK, not least because of the role that soils play as a carbon bank. DEFRA's estimates, confirmed by recent studies in Wales and Scotland, showed that around 10 billion tonnes of carbon are stored in our soil structures here in the UK. I'm nearly finished. Eighthly, disease. 
we all sort of wait on tenterhooks, don't we, to see what the latest crunch is going to be. Many wheat farmers today are focused in particular on UG99, looking at the ways in which this new black rust fungus is spreading around the world, has now spread quite disturbingly from Uganda into the whole of the rest of Africa, now spreading into Egypt, Turkey, and even into India. We'd only need one major disease to which there is very little resistance of that kind to wipe, up, wipe out a very high percentage of food stocks of that kind in the world today. And lastly, you'll be happy to know, Mark, population. You've got to come to it eventually, because it won't go away. At the end of every year, there are 70 million more people on this planet than there were at the start of it. Every single one of those additional 70 million people has a wholly legitimate expectation of a good life. For most people, a good life looks something like the life that you all lead in this tent here today. Well, I don't mean in this tent right now. This may not be a good life as it sounds currently, but nonetheless, you're all probably looking forward to getting back to your good life as soon as this one's over. 6.7 billion people today, heading almost unavoidably to 9 billion by 2050. The world finds it very hard to accommodate that physical reality. So there's my dirty dozen for you to think about in the world today. Climate change as the principal driver of concern about this, but exacerbated by all of those issues to do with diminishing reserves of land, water stress, energy costs, availability of chemicals, and so on and so forth. Now, frankly, if you just take a calm moment of reflection and you look at all of those things and you stop doing what I bet many of you are doing now and saying, oh, God, these neo-Malthusians, we can't be doing with them, really. They were talking about this in the 1970s. We saw them off then. And no doubt we'll see them off now. Really? What does the data set have to look like to puncture the unbelievable complacency that lies at the heart of systems in the UK today? How much worse does it have to get to persuade us that our current thoughts about food security are utterly pathetic against a backdrop of that kind. I ask these questions rhetorically because this data set clearly is nothing like bad enough to persuade people to do things a bit differently. So let me just point one or two thoughts as to how we can address this a little bit better. I'd like us to think now about four principles on which we should base a new strategy for sustainable and secure food and farming in the UK. The first of these is resilience, and I'm happy to say that we are now thinking much more about resilience in terms of the whole supply chain. The second is a concept which is probably a little bit upsetting to you, but it's the concept of resolarization. We're not going to be able to rely on fossil fuels to do what we've been able to rely on fossil fuels to do for the last hundred years. It isn't going to be there in the way that it has been. We're going to have to rethink food production systems dramatically. We're going to have to build new research programs to understand what low or zero carbon farming really looks like in practice. And farmers are going to have to accommodate to the reality that supplies of nitrogen are not going to be forthcoming in the way that they have been historically. 
instead of stored solar energy, which is basically what fossil fuels are, our entire enterprise is going to have to be based on real-time solar energy rather than the stored variety. Third principle, relocalization. Don Curry's wonderful report was at its strongest when it talked about the need to relocalize food supplies, food production systems in this country. We have made some progress on that since the strategy was adopted by government, but not as much as one might imagine. There's still a huge amount of work to be done to increase resilience through relocalized strategies of that kind. And lastly, the principle of what I call revitalization, understanding that more local food production systems will help enormously in terms of building more resilient local economies in general and being absolutely strategic about this. I'm always astonished when I hear ministers talk in a rather patronizing way about the importance of community-supported agriculture in the United States, as if this was somehow something that we couldn't learn from, replicate, and make a critical part of our strategy here in the UK. Patronizing approaches to what local food production systems really look like. Pats on the head for local farmers' market. Well done, guys. You're doing a fantastic job there. Keep rolling that stuff out. Don't expect us to take much interest in it because it isn't what real food and farming strategy is all about. But nonetheless, we'll give the odd speech every now and then. These are going to be absolutely critical foundations of prosperity in the agricultural supply chain, in the food and farming businesses of the future. So those four principles, I hope, resilience, resolarization, relocalization, and revitalization will inform a new strategy. I hope it's one that DEFRA will seize hold of with enthusiasm. We're stuck a bit at the moment. We have a wretchedly inadequate debate about food security where people veer all over the place in terms of absolutes of one kind or another. DEFRA, for instance, takes great pride in reminding people that we really shouldn't be aiming for complete self-sufficiency of food production here in the UK. I do not understand the value in uttering completely banal truisms of that kind. I don't know anybody who thinks that it would be smart to have a strategy of 100% self-sufficiency for food production in the UK. Well, certainly no coffee drinkers <laughs> or banana eaters or wine consumers. I don't know anybody who falls into that category. But the fact that we only produce 70% of the temperate foodstuffs that we could be growing for ourselves, that's an area where we should be paying much much more attention. So we've suggested to DEFRA that they might like to think about the following definition of food security. The UK government should define food security in terms of genuinely sustainable and secure food systems where the core goal is to feed everyone sustainably, equitably, and healthily, which addresses future needs of availability and affordability, which is diverse, ecologically sound, and resilient, and which builds the capabilities and skills necessary for future generations. We've got to start taking this seriously. If we don't start taking food security seriously, we will betray generations to come. And by taking it seriously, I mean avoiding the little cul-de-sacs of concepts that suddenly pop into, onto ministers' desks and they get very excited about them. I'm bound to mention here in passing the brief whirlwind flirtatious embrace of David Miliband and the concept of one planet living when he arrived at DEFRA. 
I only relate this because it was to me a deeply, deeply worrying indication of how hard it is to get bottomed out serious thinking about these issues in a department like DEFRA. David Miliband thought that sustainable development was a rubbish concept, too boring and geeky and wouldn't work for people. I'm almost quoting verbatim, but not quite. At which point he fell in love with the concept of one planet living. And then, as some of you may remember, because you might have been there at the Oxford Farming Conference, gave this splendidly passionate speech about one planet farming. At which point a lot of curious people, and possibly even some of the researchers here, wrote to David Miliband and said, so, this idea of one planet farming, what does it actually mean? At which point, of course, civil servants DEFRA were required then to begin to look at a few core ingredients, constituents of one planet farming, relating to the nitrogen cycle, oil, soil, water, biodiversity, phosphates, etc., etc., i.e. the real building blocks of what food production is about, rather than the spurious PR-driven communications bit at the top. After a few weeks, the concept of one planet farming got dropped, put in the bin of brave but impossible minister, and that was that. So let's have no more flirtatious engagement with concepts that don't help people understand the true nature of our challenge. And I want to put that challenge to everybody here as well, because I think we're going to have to rethink the research base for food and farming in the UK to take account of these challenges and to come forward with a very different, radically different set of ideas, of insights for the future to match the radical discontinuities that inevitably confront us today. Thank you very much. Thank you.